everyone, it's Clara and I'm back with another uh, chat with one of my science buddies. A few weeks ago I did a recording with Izzy talking mostly about equality and diversity work and stuff like that. Um, but this series is more focusing on the science and you know Izzy is a scientist so I want to find out what it is she does and learn from her and you know, learn basically. <laughs> How are you doing? You okay? Good. Yeah. How are you? Yeah, great. Thank you so much for um, sort of after me already doing one chaotic chat with you. Thank you for coming back and doing another one. That's really cool. Pleasure. Um, so do you want to introduce yourself? Where do you work? And, and sort of very overviewy of anything that you want to talk about and, and you really. Okay, so my name is Izzy Um I work in the University of Sheffield um, as a senior research fellow. Uh, I'm a uh, UKRI PhD fellow um, looking at um, using microscopy in sort of new and exciting ways of um, looking at sort of life in the sort of the tiniest spatial scales. As in terms of who I am, um, I'm a I'm a trans woman. And a, and a lesbian, and um, I guess you know I'm not from this part of the world. Um, so I was born in uh, in Sri Lanka and uh, grew up quite a lot in in New Zealand. Uh, and I've sort of worked in three countries in the last sort of ten years, um, sort of navigating a, a career in in science. So in kind of like a nutshell, that's that's who I am. <laughs> yeah, perfect. You know the irony? I've only spoken to, you're the third person I've spoken to today and the second person from Sri Lanka. So that's, yeah, um, I mean, like I say, I've not talked to many people today, but uh, there you go. <laughs> so you said that you work in microscopy. Now, I, I work with microscopy as well for looking at materials and I use scanning electron microscopes and things like that. You've actually been sort of, when we talk, you're building up your own microscope. So what sort of microscopes are these how do they very rough how they work and why why that you need these new microscopes why are you building them what's wrong with ones that you get from you know toys r us there's always something new to be built uh, it's the it's the bottom line but um in terms of the need i think if i start with a need for it um i trained as a biologist so you know we were looking at biological samples and one of the characteristic things, especially if you're looking at the biology inside sort of uh, the human body or like mammalian animal uh, cells and tissues, one of the striking issues is that they intrinsically lack, lack contrast. So they all look quite white or very pale. And if you want to look at the, the building blocks inside it, they all look colorless or very similar in color. So um, there's been a need to kind of build microscopy tools that will add contrast. And that was a feature in all of the microscopy that's been done over the decades, going back you know, more than 100 years. Every time you need to visualize something biological, you need to add a stain. Now, there are techniques that use intrinsic sort of um, color or spectral properties to, to get that contrast. But by and large, 
um, you need to, to add a stain to it to visualize some aspect of it. And it's true for electron microscopy or optical microscopy or other things. Um, so I work in optical microscopy, uh, which means that we tend to use stains that give it color. And the, the specific types that we use are fluorescent dyes, which make them glow. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 the techniques that we develop from there is kind of exploiting that fluorescence, that kind of glow to better see structures. So that's awesome. So what, what sort of level are you looking at? Are you looking at the sort of the cell, cell level, the atom level? Where are you going to? How far is, how far, how far are you going? Um, so it's been a bit of a journey. Uh, I would say um, around the time that I started my PhD, which was going back about 12 years uh, or 13 years, um, the, the scale that we could look into with optical techniques was sort of hundreds of nanometers. So 250 nanometers was the, the barrier and we call it the diffraction limit because we just didn't have the lenses and, the, and the, the tools to go beyond that in terms of resolution. But, you know, 10 years on, we are hitting resolution optically around one nanometer. Um, so, and, and that's been achieved with different approaches, different methods. Um, and these are, so these, they, they broadly, we call them super resolution microscopy. And super resolution microscopy is sort of the the overarching theme of my my research. I find it amazing that you're getting that sort of resolution with an optical microscope. I mean, I'm using scanning electron microscopes for that sort of level, but um, you know, all my materials are, are metals or pieces of ceramic. It's really easy to do. As soon as you introduce water or something, you it's it's a it's a very different prospect. Which is why we need so many different techniques, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have to clarify um, that the rules of physics still haven't changed. We've, got, we've, gotten, we've gotten better at building lenses. So there are lenses that can, uh, like in their straightforward use, can uh, reach resolution um, sort of below 200 nanometers easily. But a uh, lot of the finer improvements that are getting down to single digit nanometers uh, it's a combination of optical imaging and computational analysis. So it's it's not, strictly speaking, genuinely true to say that you can use a lens to see things optically uh, in the scale of one nanometer. Uh, it's a, there are often reconstructions based on the way we use the optical device. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. I also love the idea that, you know, you're dyeing all these cells and they're all having a little rave, like with the little fluorescent things, but that's just the way my mind goes, really. One thing that does strike me, so obviously you're talking about the human body. So, I mean, are these microscopes ones that you're using in people or are you using them on samples sort of that have been removed? Um, how, how are you doing this? <laughs> Yeah, um, so we, um, the work that I do in my team are definitely not in, like, not ones that can be directly focused on to humans or animals. Um, so what we tend to do is we take biopsies 
um, so little chunks of tissue or little samples from uh, people or animals or from other organisms. Um, and then you prepare it on a slide and we put that slide on a, on a, on a microscope. But the same principles have been used to um, look directly into living or conscious organisms. The, the most common one is the it's a head-mounted um, fluorescence microscope that can image directly into the brain of a, a conscious mouse or a rat. Um, I don't think that equivalent one has been done into a human, but uh, there are fluorescence microscopes that can image right through the the, the cranium, the the skull, into the brain. So cool! That's that's so cool. And and how did you get into this? So you said your first degree was biology. So what was your kind of career path? What was your what was your journey? Um, I've kind of gone in and out of biology. Um, so when I was in high school, my favorite subject was physics. Um, and I won a scholarship to go to university to study science on the back of a physics project that I did. Um, and then when I got to university, I didn't really believe in my math skills. My, I think I thought um, my math skills were quite weak. So I picked one that was easy on the maths, which is biology. And I quickly learned that um, the interesting biology happens in the interface of biology with quantitative fields. Um, and that was, and so I fell into, I kind of found a, a research group that was working on biophysics. Um, so they were kind of imaging cells and they were making measurements uh, from those images. And then they were uh, making deductions about how you know, the physical processes that drive life in those cells, you know, for example, things like diffusion, uh, things like electrical um, signaling worked. So they, they were still embedded in physics. Um, and that group that I joined, uh, they were interested in cells in the heart. And they were using optical microscopy to make those measurements. Uh, and over the years, uh, so I, that my PhD was in physiology, uh, technically, uh, but uh, since then, I've gradually become more interested in the, in the tool than the question. It's funny how it changes, isn't it? And I think that's the nice thing. You're a little bit similar um, to me in the, you know, I'm a material scientist. And so that's, I started in engineering, but then there's the physics, there's the chemistry. It's kind of materials is a hybrid science. And it's, it's a little bit similar to what you're doing. It's like there's a bit of biology, but there's a lot of physics as well. And it's a real mix. Yeah, and also you can't really pigeonhole yourself into one discipline. I mean, uh, some people do, and you know, that's that's their career choice. Um, I think of it all as just science, and you know, if I need something, if I need to learn something from chemistry, I, I go ahead and do that. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, always sort of. Well, I mean, it's it's a, it's a way of challenging oneself. But I think it, it makes life and, and work interesting if you are prepared to learn new things. I completely agree. And I've, yeah, I mean, I've been doing the same thing. I'm 
sort of currently learning as well um interesting actually so you know i count myself i do i do research but i don't lecture do you also lecture do you teach um i do so i mean teaching is has been a part of my career um at, at various stages so um so when i was a phd student i also worked as a tutor in the department i think these days we, they're called as sort of uh, teaching fellows uh, so I was kind of like a equivalent of a junior teaching fellow um, part-time. Um, but then more recently, when I kind of became an independent researcher, that was on the agreement that I would take on a certain amount of the, the department's teaching. So I was I was teaching uh, mostly biology, so physiology. Uh, but then I was also teaching some, some courses and modules where um, it's more technically focused, sort of, uh, and the aim was not just to, um, you know, just deliver more and more content on biology, but to, to kind of instill the scientific skills that are transferable uh, when it comes to the students. So, you know, to be able to write a good report, to, to be able to uh, plot graphs that are scientifically accessible and, and clear. Um, to be able to analyze data and um, do presentations and things like that. Yeah, that's really good. It's it it just you know when you were speaking, I it just made me think because I mean I also I was um, whatever they call it doing some teaching when I was when I was uh, doing my PhD, uh, but I was you know my PhD was in material science and I was lecturing in the uh, while well, teaching in the engineering because that was where that was my degree that's what I did so the material side has always been more practical and I've since I've been in sort of materials groups and especially now at Oxford I just I don't feel like I'm I, I don't feel like I have the background necessarily to be able to do it um but of late with putting together certain videos and learning different subjects, I'm like, hey, hang on, maybe I can. I was worried I'd fried my brain, basically. I thought that I'd no. frazzled it. <laughs> I guess the um, the thing to remember is that um, teaching or lecturing or tutoring, they are forms of science communication. So um, the, the main difference is that you know you are now working within a certain structure, a certain program, to a certain plan that fits into a bigger sort of program of teaching. But essentially, the, the basics are still the same. You know, the basics are to sort of uh, engage and captivate your audience and, and kind of make that topic in, interesting and accessible and, and give the students the tools to to learn however much they they want to learn do you enjoy the, the do you prefer the teaching side do you prefer the research side do you like a mix of both um uh, it, it varies from time to time um there are to be really honest um so the aspects of teaching that i really enjoy is is standing up in front of the class and um uh, kind of introducing the topic that the students have not been exposed to before and really exploring it and having a conversation with them about it and, and observing how they are engaging with it and how they, they really run with the ideas. And that's the, the fun part of teaching. 
the, the, the aspect of teaching that is um, less enjoyable, and I think as a this as a kind of a, a sector, higher education needs to evolve on is uh, how we assess teaching or how we assess the learning. Um, and, you know, as a teacher who has been now do the marking, it is quite backbreaking and kind of soul-destroying work um, to, to mark, you know, 80, 100 reports uh, of the same time again and again and again and things that are written in a very prescribed way. Um, and, I, and, and there's, a, there's a big field on teaching pedagogies in higher education. And, um, the, you, you know, there's a thing called the, the Bloom's hierarchy of, of learning. And at the very bottom are things like the, the learning of the facts, the knowledge and the, the details. At the highest levels of learning, you're talking about um, being able to synthesize something new. And I think at the moment, you know, most universities dwell a lot on the, the facts and the work learning yeah. and not really reaching for that understanding and, and being able to synthesize something new. Mm. And I think, you know, I would enjoy that part of that marking, for example, if, if we transitioned into higher levels of learning mm. as, a, as a sector. And I think there's some work to be done on that. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm not, I'm someone that has to learn by doing. It's as simple as that. So if I've done an experiment, you know, even when I'm reading, because it's relating to something that I'm specifically doing, I pick up on things and it just stays. Whereas if I'm just, just reading, I can, yeah. I can do quite well in exams, but it's gone as soon as the exam's finished. Yeah, like especially, you know, it's, it's a bit like learning a new technique and then applying it. After you've done that experiment a few times using a new microscopy method or a new manufacturing method, you have a much more sort of cohesive and three-dimensional sort of understanding of it than if you, for example, had to you know, write an essay or a paragraph in an exam. I think we don't necessarily get learning right in universities. There's a lot of people that are forced to teach who are good researchers but don't know how to teach. And, and like you say, you know, when it comes to exam time or reports time or whatever, I I see how busy our lecturers are, and it's kind of glad I'm not in it. <laughs> yeah, it's also it's also the economics that don't really work with that that philosophy. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's an ongoing debate about you know the value of you know the the money that students pay to universities to to get their learning and how best to how how efficiently to really deliver that teaching and i think um especially in times like this pandemic when it's very difficult to learn in person in a group or in a lab it's very difficult to, to deliver those sort of deeper levels of understanding and it's a real real shame yeah uh i mean yeah obviously we're learning a lot now and having to change how we do things but i also think that there will be positives i think that yeah. you know we're starting to realize that people who do struggle to get into um lectures for one reason or another and there's plenty of reasons i think we're starting to see that 
there are more tools and we can change how we do things. Yeah. Also, I do like, especially with labs and things like that, you know, you need to be hands on. You can't do a virtual lab um, unless it's software, maybe. I don't know. It's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think even what you're doing through your YouTube channel is actually kind of ahead of that curve because what we you know, what we've seen in universities is um, academics being asked to suddenly, you know, get on to video yeah. uh, tools and and use animations and sort of you know, short videos to really drill into that, the, the, the details of what they're teaching. Yeah. And uh, I think this is going to be the new norm. And uh, it doesn't, you know, just because... Just because you're not sort of teaching, you know, or recording these videos for a specific class doesn't mean that, you know, it's this is not the new way. So I think there's, there's lots that the universities are learning from kind of the YouTube um, generation. It's, that's interesting. I've wanted to do it for years and years, animating the science. I thought that it'd always be really well. Um, I mean, I'd love to actually work with professional animators and really, you know, really break it down. Um, and there are some YouTube channels that do that really well. Um, you know, I feel like mine are basic. I mean, they are basic. I'm not, <laughs> uh, you know, they are basic. In, but it, it doesn't matter as long as you can still get the points across. And that's, yeah. um, and that's what I hope we can do. And yeah. yeah. I, I, I think... Um... It, just looking at science YouTube, um, absolutely there are some channels that are really good at using animations or other kind of visual aids. But there are also channels that, that are, have been successful that are not so reliant on graphics. Um, so I think, I think it's not a single formula. It's, it's, it's the whole package that you deliver. Absolutely. And the truth is that two different presenters could have really similar style, but there's something yeah. that just clicks with one of them and it doesn't click with the other. And that's what we've got to remember. I don't think it's difficult in universities. I don't think it's a weakness if someone's like, I can't learn from you. You know, I, I can get an overview, but with this person, I understand it deeper. And I, I don't, we shouldn't be looking at that as a weakness. We should be looking at what the difference is then and sort of analyzing it and using that to improve our teaching. But, yeah. But our lecturers, most of them, you know, a lot of people, they, they're researchers who have to teach and that's, and it means that they, they feel that they're doing the teaching because they have to do it. And yeah, we need to give people more time and more training, but universities that's right whether they will yeah i think it's uh personally i find that um good teachers good science communicators are uncorrelated with you know in terms of how well they're doing in research mm. um so um you know, going back to the pre-youtube era when i was an undergraduate yeah. um there were some amazing lectures so that, there was a lecturer who taught us in cancer biology who um you know who was a really captivating lecturer and drew cartoons so on the on the whiteboard he would fill the whiteboard so that we have about three or four whiteboards in the room and he would fill them with cartoons and they were like they're immaculate 
and um, you know he would he he would like you know he would anthropomorphize some of the things like for example you know if you're looking if you're talking about immune cells that attack cancer cells he would draw them as little army soldiers and and so on so it was really accessible uh, and another and and he was he was a teaching fellow uh, in the university but then there was also another professor who was um, a really you know a, a real superstar and and he was a captivating person to listen to just you know he didn't have any any extra talents or aids but as a, as a speaker he was quite captivating so you know there are i think you know um, you don't have to be superstar in scientific research to be a good teacher by the same time you know you could be um, so it just depends on depends on what your passions are and what you're interested in absolutely yeah no i mean i've had amazing um lecturers who were great researchers and i've had terrible ones in in either direction you know i mean that's always the case going back to your research so um so you mentioned sort of so we are currently in the sort of pandemic lockdown era which means that we're changing everything about how we work i mean obviously your 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 day-to-day job is in the lab right so how how are you doing at the moment are you back in the lab are you getting towards getting back in the lab um i'm in a really precarious situation uh between kind of well, I've, I ended uh, my previous job in a different university, and I started in my new position during the lockdown. Yeah, it's a strange time to start a new job, yeah. and um, the issue has been that all my kit, all my microscopes, are in my in that previous lab, still locked down. Uh, so I can't really begin my experiments properly in the new new setup. So uh, it's a constant sort of communication process of working out when best to, you know, get access to that equipment and then go and set it up. Yeah. So is, are the are the uh, labs in your new building in your new university? Are they starting to open up now? Yeah, they are opening up in in limited capacity. Uh, they, you know, the the emphasis is really to keep the, the density of people down. Uh, because you know, for SARS-CoV to the the virus, um, I think the biggest risk is sort of enclosed spaces, sort of that are not very well ventilated, and and people kind of going in and out of those spaces are being asked to share those spaces. Um, and so there's still a there's still an encouragement to work from home as much as possible, uh, but in terms of what I do, um, I would say about 50% of that work is uh, image analysis and, and writing software, yeah. and, and about another 50% are kind of experimental. So there's no shortage of data at the moment for me uh, from the pre-lockdown times that I can analyze um, on my computer. Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I I need to make new samples, I need to make new films, and then I need to analyse them. A lot of what I do is, you know, if I'm doing the research, it's in the lab. <laughs> Have you been going in? Oh, the the building, I did the risk assessments for the labs about, I think they went in about two weeks ago, 
and they they they've been signed off most of the way up but they're as you say trying to open the labs one at a time to reduce yeah. the sort of impact on the thing so i wasn't sure like last week i thought i'd be in the building last week and this week i thought i was going to be in the building this week so it's like okay maybe i'll be in next week and i probably will i pro but then again i seem to remember saying that on monday as well that i'll be in yeah next week, so. um i know that we've got some um postgraduate and and uh, phd researchers who are really keen to get in and they sort of take priority so i've got to get in and get the kit up and running for them and then, and then I can sort of. I mean, my research at the moment is very much on the side, so I'm yeah. there to facilitate their research. And sure. uh, hopefully, I can do some of my own, which I have. Um, yeah. Um, but it's difficult. Um, it's it's a difficult time for everyone, and obviously, I mean, we had a postdoc. So, I, you know, I feel bad for you. We had a postdoc arrive, um, and they moved to the UK, and they arrived a week before lockdown and oh what a time to arrive yeah and i actually i was like i can't teach you to use the equipment because i know full well that it's going to be a, <laughs> it's going to be a month before you're back in the lab and using it and you'll have forgotten so i'll teach you again and and um yeah. there wasn't anything that i could really do in that time so i was like you need to read and then we'll come back in a month and we'll <laughs> teach you properly yeah. that was back when we thought it was going to be a month uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it really like uh, hammers home the, the the reality that a lot of scientific work that's been done relies on skills that are passed on from one person to the next. Yeah. And and in a situation like this, where you know it's the air that we breathe that transmits the disease, yeah. uh, where like teaching those sort of skills from one person to the other is really difficult and that, that that's the real real barrier for science sort of progressing in this time that's one of the two big issues that i've realized um you know one is that i will have to teach him how to use potentially dangerous equipment you know and so i've got to be able to do that and do it safely um you know once they know how to use it they can just get on and use it on their own it's fine yeah. but the other yeah. thing is that we're also sort of like you i mean not the same scale but we're also building a new microscope and so i had all the parts arrive before lockdown and sometimes you need two people to, to put things together and to test them yeah. and everything so and you need time in the lab like building a microscope is not something that you can do to a schedule yeah. easily um, you know, you need you need lots of time uh, and time to not just build but to validate the, the tool. Absolutely, um, it's it's just a, it's it is unusual, um, and I'm just I'm curious how it's going to impact research sort of down the line, um, especially with grants and stuff like that. So you've got a, I mean you got a really amazing fellowship, right? In terms of prestige, yeah. and you know you're a UKRI. Uh, future leader i mean that, yeah. that's brilliant tell tell us about this what what it means yeah what it is. yeah i mean i think it it was um you know sort of you know applying the right scheme at the right time um and uh but essentially what it is is that it's a fellowship that's designed to support uh people who are not necessarily fully established as researchers or independent 
researchers, um, but also don't fit neatly into a specific box. So I, I, I mean, as I said, I, I trained as a biologist, but a lot of what I do these days is sort of embedded in physics, chemistry, and engineering. Yeah. And um, and over the last four or five years, I've struggled to get funded for that kind of interdisciplinary work yeah. because um, you know I would apply to a very specific funder that focuses on medicine or biology or heart disease or something like that, and the the full the, the full gravity of that, that proposal doesn't always reach them. Yeah. And um, when this fellowship scheme came along, um, it was the first time that it was that the proposals were being assessed for being really good all-rounders. So, you know, it wasn't just about your science, it's, it's about your capacity to lead. Uh, and you know, demonstrating that you can, for example, put together a network of researchers that will work together on the same project. Um, it's things like having a plan on, like, if you're building something, having a plan to commercialize that 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 technology. Uh, so, yeah. So I think um, it was the sort of scheme that was built for. The, the kind of researcher that I am, yeah. but it, it was also um, it's it's a it's a prestigious fellowship because it's it, each fellowship lasts seven years, wow. Um, wow. so they give you funding upfront for four years and then you have to kind of apply to the for the remaining funding. But essentially, you're a fellow for seven years, and it gives you that time. To, to build a research program that no other single grant can do. Yeah. Um, and it means that you can, you can really dream big and be really ambitious and also at the same time grow as a person. So by the time you've finished your fellowship, you uh, should know where what your direction is, um, whether you want to, whether you're well established by then as a senior academic in the department or whether you want to go and establish a company, or go into politics, or whatever. Yeah. And and the fellowship scheme is not just necessarily for science or engineering. It's um it's a, it's a range of people. So from humanities, from uh, disciplines like psychology, medicine, and so on. So it's a cohort that's very diverse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, um. It's a bit like hitting the, the, the jackpot to, to get one of those. I mean, you said the right place, the right scheme, the right time, but also the, the because of the merit of your academic work and your knowledge. And, um, you know, you're very sort of like, oh, yeah, think, you know, very, oh, what's the word? Modest. And, and, but, you know, you got it because you're also, you've got the skills. And, and this sort of scheme is exactly for people like you who are, but they're struggling to get the grants because they're not always understood. So, yeah, it takes a bit of practice to to get there, and um, I, I mean, for some people it comes, perhaps it comes naturally. I'm not sure, uh, but for me, um, I had had a, you know, a few close failures, so I had interviewed for other fellowships, and you know, at the very final stage, I would get knocked back. And I think 
you know, those failures have really stretched me as a as an academic, um, and and sort of it's pushed me to sort of refine the way I write and and the way I communicate science. Um, it's painful. It's exhausting. Um, and I think we know. I think even in the previous conversations, we've talked about how um, there are the, the landscape for getting funded is not not flat. Uh, there are some real uh, issues around equity uh, for various groups who are disadvantaged in the process. Um, but I think uh, that that landscape may be shifting. Uh, and the UKRI, for once, I know, are definitely conscious about that this issue, yeah. uh, if, if not, you know, taking some action towards it. Yeah. Uh, only time will tell whether their actions and you know what they're doing is going to be effective in the long term yeah i i I was in a weird position because you know the phd i went to was already funded then the postdoc and the visiting posts were all already funded so i was already sort of eight years in before i had to apply for anything and that's when i was really making my decision on transitioning so i wasn't publishing and my mental health wasn't good so i you know the last five years i've been working um, I've been able to do research because I I managed to get a job, um, a management a lab management job, which they were very happy to let me do research as well. That I've got a really amazing group. But now I think I personally I'd have to sort of you know I I need those career break fellowships or whatever um, because it does it if it it affects us in different ways and there's a lot of reasons why we're not up for grants or why we're not getting them even yeah yeah i, I mean i think the there needs to be a, a broader conversation about um how you know, we as the scientific community are, are doing science because um you know there's definitely a big part of our community who don't have the time and the support to write grant applications but you know um and it, it really comes down to balancing out, you know, what are they happy doing and what do they want to do. Um, And writing competitive applications is a good strategy if you want to do something that you can't currently do. And uh, at the same time, the, the, the funders need to look after the area of science that are sustainable are basically that are ongoing based on what is fundable you know as a as a given so i think those are the two aspects of science that you know i think we as the community need to support um so you know as a community we shouldn't kind of stop people from you know going for funding for something ambitious that they want to do at the same time you know, while taking away the, the, the science that they like doing. Yeah. Um, it's quite challenging thing to, to challenging balance to achieve, I think. And actually, I just, I don't know, I mean, it'd be nice to just talk a little bit more about the sort of microscopes and the research and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. So, I mean, so like you say, in order to be competitive with grants, you've got to show that it's commercial or, that, you know, that it'll be used, it's practical. Um, I think Blue Sky's research is really, really important. I was talking to Andrew Sepp, and that's a lot of what he's doing. 
which great, but you can't always get the you can't always get that funded. Um, so what is the what is the use of the microscopes, the techniques that you're developing? What what are you using them for? You said it was to be able to see a different resolution, but why why do yeah. we need to? So my work is sort of driven by a mix of blue sky research and um, sort of commercially aimed um, developments. So the blue sky research sort of is, is aimed at understanding how proteins, individual proteins interact inside the cell and work together to, to kind of sustain life. Yep. And, um, and they, they kind of link to diseases uh, and to understanding things like heart disease. But um, the biologist in me is interested in uh, knowing how they work. So that, that is the blue sky aspect of that research. And the microscopes that I build um, allow me to do things like map those proteins in space. So in a cell, in a, in a three-dimensional volume, I mean, a cell is relatively large. So uh, a mammalian cell you know, you're looking at about, you know, multiple microns yeah. across. Um, but if you look at a single protein, you're now starting to get into single, like nanometers, you know, a few nanometers. Some of the proteins that I look at are a bit larger. They're about 30 nanometers. Uh, so you can see them optically with these techniques individually. Wow. And what you can do is you can have a map of where the proteins are, and conduct virtual experiments. Uh, once you have a, a, that map in a computer, you can run simulations on how they interact and they, how they produce a signal yeah. or um, how they drive some kind of, cell, some kind of um, response to the cell in, 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 in the heart. The cells are muscle cells, so basically these proteins kind of make the cell contract. They, they shorten physically. So you can actually run those experiments in virtual space if you have those precise, you know, maps, which you can't usually do um, experimentally sometimes because, um, you know, if you're looking at live imaging of cells while, you know, while they are doing their thing, you can't really get that level of detail. So sometimes that, those experiments need to be done in virtual space. So that so that's the kind of blue sky aspect of it. Yeah, uh, that's the motivation. The other motivation has been a more practical one, and that is to help biologists, um, generally speaking, to see structures better. Yeah. So um, there's a clear difference between resolving a structure at a resolution of one or two hundred nanometers compared to resolving it at one or two nanometers or 10 nanometers, for example. Yeah. Um, so there's a real race to, to, to sort of improve that resolution. And there are different strategies of getting this. Um, one is a method or a family of method called localization microscopy. Uh, and I'll link, I'll send you a link to, to be um, posted below the video um, of how it works, yeah. Uh, there's one video uh, made by a colleague of mine uh, that kind of illustrates this point sort of more visually. Um, and that video was uh, a video that he recorded on his mobile phone 
of the light show at um, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. So you have these flashing lights on the tower, and when they're flashing, you can kind of make an out, make out an outline of the tower, yeah. but um, you know it's it's kind of a blurry image. And what you can do is um, record a video of those flashing lights, and in each frame of the video, you're mathematically, computationally pinpointing where that flash is coming from. And that centroid, that center of each flash, if you then superposition them onto a map, that map suddenly gives you more detail uh, and you get a much more crisp image of, of the Eiffel Tower. So I'll, I'll, link, I'll link that on the video. Um, you can go and have a look. Amazing. That's so yeah. cool. Uh, and, th and there's a story about it, how they, how they um, came across it. So there was, in the mid-2000s, 2005, there were about four or five groups that were working on this concept. Um, and it was a, a, a small number of them actually, actually got recognized for that work. Um, so they got the, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2014 for it. Um, and so there was a researcher called Eric Bedsick, um, and I'll send uh, a link of one of his talks as well. And he was unemployed when he developed this method. Um, so he had, he had essentially lost his job from his institute, um, and, and he had... Um, he was, he was talking, I think he was on a, going for a walk with one of his former colleagues uh, and just generally sort of talking about the great unanswered questions in science. And they, they kind, of, kind of arrived at this idea that, that you know, they hadn't got around to, to, to testing. And they went back and uh, approached some colleagues from Harvard uh, and uh, borrowed some laser equipment, and they set up a, a microscope in the living room of one of them, one, uh, one of their houses, and um, and did the experiment in at home, and went back and and wrote a paper in Science. Wow. Um, now he heads up a a, a major research institute in, in Jamelia Farm. This says it all about science, right? Like, you know, it, this person had lost their job and as soon as they had a bit more time, maybe they didn't have the pressures and they were able to think about problems. So this is why with our researchers, we've got to give them time to think because that's where when the ideas come, that's when often, you know, you relax and you're like, oh, what about this? And just try it. And exactly, we don't have that. We give people no. money because we know they're going to get results and because they might be able to just experiment and see what happens. Exactly. And I think these days, you know, especially these days, you have to map every single one of your outputs uh, before you apply mm. for the funding. And so, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a foregone conclusion. So, you know, you, you're basically working to a very strict script there's very little room to to go out and explore and, and innovate in things um, and so fellowships really they do help with that the, the fellowships uh, tend to be more flexible and accommodating of new innovations uh, and i'm lu i'm lucky in that 
that aspect. But um, that's, I think, one of the real issues of contemporary science, that um, everything has to be done to a budget and to a plan. You got disillusioned, you know, when when I was sort of getting towards the end of my, my postdocs, because I, you know, sort of noticed something and I discussed it through with a few more people and it's like, wow, this looks like it's a real thing. And when I was trying to write about it, it's like, well, no one's done it before. There's no literature to talk about. So we don't know that it's happening. So you shouldn't be talking about it. I'm like, what? This is, you know, this is like, we might have discovered something and it might have been important. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed like it was possible, but because there wasn't the confidence because it hadn't been done before, yeah. if it had been done before, they would have been fine with me talking about it. But because yeah. it hadn't, like, what? Yeah. Yeah, you have to really be prepared to explore new opportunities uh, in, order, in order to kind of make breakthroughs. Uh, there's one example that I can give from my group. Um, so before I got this Future Leader Fellowship, um, I had a small grant from the Wellcome Trust called the Seed Award. Um, and it was a very, like, it was a very specific task that we had to do. And the person that I hired to do that that work was a, a junior postdoc who was straight out of her PhD. And she worked really efficiently and really hard and kind of achieved all the aims of that grant um, around, about, in about, around about half the time that we expected it to take. And so um, after that, it was kind of, kind of an exploration. Uh, and she actually made a mistake uh, one day. So she was trying to use uh, fluorescent nanodiamonds, uh, which you may know about. Uh, so these are tiny little diamonds that are that, that are produced either synthetically or you know products of detonation. Um, and we can use them as tags for protein. Okay. Uh, and and they fluoresce, so they, they glow, um, and so you can image the, where the proteins are right. if you can use them as tags. And um, this colleague had, you know, just out of the blue, tried some nanodiamonds as labels, and uh, she was using a microscope that I had I had built. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a custom microscope, and it, you know, uh, things change in a, in a custom microscope, especially if multiple people are using it. And on the day that she was imaging it, she had the wrong filters on. And she discovered this kind of flashing behavior that I described, like in the Eiffel Tower, wow. uh, which, which would not have been seen if the correct filters were on. Um, and then so we, we wrote a paper about it, and, and, and it's now um, in review uh, with the with a you know recently high impact journal, nice, nice. and and it was it was just that you know obviously exploration. She she was brave enough to try something try something new. Yeah. Uh, but also when we recognised that this was different, you know, it was we had no explanation for it at the time, yeah. but we kind of kind of sat with it and we pursued it. Um, it it turned into a, a project and yeah I, I i um got an email this morning so i wrote the spec for a bit of uh, equipment that another group bought or are buying it's being built 
um and they were like and the company were like so what conditions do you run this at and this at and this at and i'm like oh no we don't like they were wish listings that i put on the equipment just because i wanted to like i've never been able to have them i've wanted to try them so i don't know i haven't got conditions might not even use the equipment but it was basically just a what do i want to try i'll put it on this <laughs> there's always an endless list of experiments that you wanted to do and haven't got the time or the resources to get around to yeah i um I really hope I do actually get to use that kit because I really like, like I say, it's not even for me, but I was like, I want to try these things. So we'll see. Yeah. So, I mean, so we've been talking for quite a while now. So I'll just, I mean, we both know each other because we uh, have been working in various sort of equality and diversity and equity projects. So, I mean, are there any projects that you're involved with that you're really happy about and you want to talk about? And... I think, um, at the moment, one of the projects that we are both involved in is this um, Tiger in STEM webinar series that we just launched. Um, and um, I guess the backstory to that, uh, at least the, the bit that I'm, I'm willing to share, is that um, the, the lockdown has seen kind of a real expansion in online events and webinars and online conferences and workshops and for webinars especially you know it, it has kind of for me at least has really brought out the hierarchical nature of academia so you know the people who get invited to give webinars have tended to be you know uh, senior professors often over-representing male academics, um, cis, white, um, straight male academics. And you may have seen on social media, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, how this, this is not, not fair and you know, how that needs to change. And, and some of the organizations that have been hosting webinars have been doing that, yeah. um, actively going out of their way to in, invite um, female and you know, you know LGBTQI uh, researchers uh, and also people who are not cis, so you know trans and non-binary uh, researchers to 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 really take the platform and talk about what they do and and their experiences. But I have found that that is still not adequate. You know, if you look at a webinar series. Um, it is still, you know, in terms of numbers, uh, dominated by uh, people who are not in the margins. And um, so, you know, we kind of rallied together to create this sort of webinar series to kind of bring um, a bit more equity. So, you know, not, not just invite people who are professors and, and at the top of their fields, but also give the platform to, you know, PhD researchers or really early career postdoctoral and sort of research fellows. Um, and also, you know, showcase that, you know, disciplines like physics are diverse. And just because you don't give them the platform doesn't mean that those groups exist, you know, the groups that are uh, underrepresented. So the Tiger and STEM webinar series is sort of, will be kind of put together as a kind of a first step towards changing this, this, this attitude. Um, I really hope that it will catch on 
Uh, and I think by the time this video airs, we will have had our first webinar. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I hope it, it show, shows everyone that to have a great webinar, um, you know, what you need is, a, is a, you know, a series of speakers who are really passionate about their work and, and willing to talk authentically. And not, it's not about who they are, and it's not about how senior they are or established they are. Um, so that that's sort of the the thing that's going on for me at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's so. Um, yeah, I think it might have started when I put this out. Although I might actually try and get it out a little bit earlier, um, um, so that we can advertise it. And also, you know, they will be available on the uh, Tiger in STEM YouTube channel as well. So even if right. they've happened, you can still watch them, everyone. Um, there are some amazing speakers, like people that I have seen speak, and I just, I, I am excited. So. Uh, I'm really excited to watch that, and it, it it's interesting, like you say, it's about making sure that people have got the platform. Like, so I think I know I know I get nice feedback when I do talk, and people like the way I do presentations and and stuff like that. But I'm only talking because I'm, you know, people are actually trying to find someone that's trans, you know, in STEM. Yeah, um, and you know, my scientific career hadn't necessarily achieved what I wanted to achieve. And I'm hoping that I can sort of pull it back a little bit, but I've enjoyed doing the outreach and, and talking about diversity in STEM. And now I'm starting to talk about the science again. But if you don't give those people the platform, you could lose good people. I've seen some amazing people speak who wouldn't have had a platform if people hadn't made the effort to yeah. um, be more diverse with their lineup. I have to say that one myth that we are trying to bust is is the, this idea that um, scientific platforms are, you know, for the work alone, and it's not. It has to be dissociated from the person, and that is entirely inaccurate. And it is actually wrong, yeah. because um, because who we are and what, how we do science is deeply embedded in in our identities and how we come about. So, I mean, I, I will give an example from myself yeah. uh, because that's the easiest thing to do. I have actively chosen uh, an area of science where I can build my equipment and build the tools that I need for my research because um, I trained in a place like New Zealand where scientific research is chronically underfunded and we were expected to kind of innovate. And uh, we have a, actually a term called number eight wire, um, which relates to the farming wire that, that they use in farms in New Zealand uh, for, for fencing, particularly. And that, you know, the idea, the anecdote is that you can make anything out of number eight wire. Um, so, um, and that, you know, if you look at some of the microscopes that I, build, I have built in the past, not necessarily going forward. Uh -huh. Uh, I, ha I have had to, to you know, have a left field approach, yeah. and that, that was the only way that I was going to get my science done. Yeah. That was the only way that I could stay, you know, stay competitive in my scientific field. Yeah. And if anyone says that, well, you know, um, you can't talk about who you are and where you come from uh, when you talk about your science, that's rubbish. So I think that that myth needs to be busted. There are impacts. There are f 
of course there are impacts from talking about it. You know, I had a conversation last night about, um, you know, the father of eugenics, and it's like, yeah, they, Galston did a lot for maths, but you can't <laughs> just talk about that without talking about who they are, putting them into context, because that will push people out. Yeah, we don't. Want, we shouldn't be making people feel uncomfortable. I was watching one of your uh, videos recently where you talked about, you know, um, your formative years as a trans person, particularly before you transitioned, and how those, you know, how you had to sort of um, go about life differently. Um, and I have a similar story that uh, when I was, you know, when I was a school kid. And I was, you know, um, you know, quite a gender variant, you know, child. Yeah. Uh, my parents had a, an approach where um, they thought that controlling what I read and, you know, media that I had access to was sort of limiting um, or, or could, could kind of control and put me to on the right path to being normal. Yeah. Um, and... Um, the, the strategy that I had, I mean, one of the things that my parents actively did was they censored newspapers that they bought. Um, they didn't have access at home, access to the internet at home. But there's there's a really, really interesting point. So you hear these discussions about uh, nature over nurture, and if you don't give access to young people who are uh, gender variant or uh, have different sexual identities, that they won't become trans or gay or bi but actually what you're what we're showing is that it doesn't matter whether we've got the knowledge available we still know and we will find a way you know for me i just had to wait a long time which isn't great yeah. i mean i think the the, the take-home message is that you can't hide the truth from people um i think i i consider myself lucky to be alive to, like, that it didn't um, well, I, did, I didn't let it impact me in a negative way. Uh, I probably nearly did. Mm -hmm. But um, um, I think you, you, can't, you can't hide the truth from people. So, you know, people will seek out the truth, even if they have to go through a massive detour. And um, so, you know, information especially, you can't, you can't with, withhold information from, you know, the public, the, the people, and they will find it at, at some stage. And some people, you know, I have read stories and or uh, experiences of some people who discover what it means to be transgender, you know, in the in the really sort of the twilight years of your life, of their lives, and that changes them. And um, however, however they access that information. Um, yeah, you can't control that. You can't control people's destinies. Yeah, sorry. That's, there's, there, there was a lot at the end and it, it touched me. And yeah, we're, you know, like you say, lucky to have you around. And, and yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else? I realize I've, I've kept you on a little bit uh, longer. So is there anything else that you want to touch on? Are you quite happy with where we've got to and everything? Um, I think, you know, a brief thing to say is that how grateful you, that, uh, that, that you're doing this kind of outreach and also, you know, just, just for being who you are. Um, I guess I have been following your YouTube channel closely in the last sort of couple of months, especially in the lockdown months. Yeah. 
And and you know, lots of the things that you are sharing you know, are striking major chords in me, and I'm sure that is true for a lot of uh, LGBTQI colleagues. Um, and I think these are things that need to be said and experiences that need to be shared. And you're doing a great service to the to that community by 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 you know being authentic and being who you are and, and sharing this openly. Uh, and having this discussion, so uh, long may may that continue. It's amazing. I'm and you know it's just this is my story, my journey, my viewpoints, and my yeah. thoughts. And I am not story. You know, this is the point about diversity, right? We're just we all have our different stories. We all have our different backgrounds, and we just and the more stories you hear, the more information you have, the more yeah. you can find your path. And and yeah, I I, I haven't said this yet. Congratulations on the national diversity uh, nomination! Like that's amazing. Like I am, Thank you. I'm jealous. Uh, I'm not. Gonna lie. First thought was, God damn it, I wanted that, but um, I um, maybe in the future. But I think that's amazing. Um, I I think you know I'm I'm still in the shortlist, but if I win it, it'll be it'll definitely be a group effort because. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen the nomination process. It's a, it's a lot of writing and a lot of yeah. admin to do, and so it's it's all thanks to all the people who took the time to write nominations yeah. for me. Yeah, I was I was I'd looked at it because I didn't know that uh, you were getting nominated, and it's just amazing. It's I think it's brilliant, and uh, I think you deserve thank you uh, being on the shortlist. It's great. So thank you. Yeah, it's a con. It's the colleagues in Tiger in STEM who have really pushed it, and I think you know you, you were you were one. Of, I think you were the, the the initial colleague who kind of invited me to join Tiger in STEM, and I think that's kind of your example of you know what uh, a positive environment can do um, to to an individual, like you know uh, you know giving giving them a platform and giving you know, giving them a voice. Um, so, I, I talked yeah. a lot about this with Andrew. That what I like about the Tiger in STEM group is that we can get things wrong, and we know yeah. that people will understand that we've got it wrong because we don't know yeah. and are willing to listen why we got it wrong, and we're listen, willing to listen why we got it wrong. And you know, yeah. that learning everyone knows that it's like I don't have the experience of this, so we have other people that we can go to and know that we won't be judged for not knowing yeah. for getting it wrong. Yeah, and also the the goal of Tiger in STEM is bigger than sort of individual goals. Uh, I mean, I have been in, involved with EDI groups, or equality and diversity inclusion groups yeah. in institutions, uh, where there's always, for the individual, there's always an agenda, there's always a, you know, a goal. Yeah. While in Tiger in STEM, the goal is to make our community better. And I think you know, uh, there's very little that an individual can aim to take away from it, other than that big goal. And I think that's what what drives us, and that's what makes that community like really, you know, really friendly and um, collegial. Well, thank you so much. I like I say I'm lucky to have you as a friend to be able to talk to from and likewise. Um, and I appreciate that you give me time to do things like this because <laughs> you are. A pleasure. We, like, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Cool. Well, with that, uh, thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Clara. Thanks. Bye.
Cool. So that was uh, me talking with Izzy and what an amazing individual. So um, uh, I could talk for hours. I really could, but I don't want to take all her time. Uh, so yeah, thanks so much for listening. Uh, and also, you know, don't forget to give it a like, a subscribe, share, tell your friends that you know we're here and we're doing this. That'd be brilliant. And then um, I'll be back with another talk in a few weeks. Uh, so bye. Thank you.